Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Amos. For those that are using the Pew Bibles, you can look at 746, page 746. We're reading from verse 1. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when there is no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when there is no bait there? Does a trap spring from the ground if it has caught nothing? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashod and the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression amongst her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who stores up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, an enemy will overrun your land, will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed or a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I will punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter houses along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. I'm not sure you've seen these. They were a rarity back then, um, but they're all over the place now. It was one machine to rule them all, one machine to wash your clothes and dry your clothes. Uh, You see, we lived in a tiny terrace house that was owned by the college, and so we needed something uh, really small, something compact, something quiet, because Maddie was on her way. Uh, so when I, was, uh, I saw a person selling a second-hand washer-dry combo on Gumtree, I got so excited. I didn't think I'd ever get excited about a washing machine before, but I did. I was very excited uh, when I saw this. I went, uh, had a look at it. It was in great condition, took it home, installed it, and it worked like a charm. A couple of days later, I, 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 however, I noticed this funny smell. Uh, but I, we, we never owned a dry before, so I thought, oh, maybe it's just the way dryers smell. But a few days went past and then I started noticing these bugs around the washing machine and in the laundry. 
And so I thought that was a bit odd. And then one day the machine completely stopped altogether. So I opened up the control panel, and I'm no handyman if you know me at all. I opened it up and it was filled with bugs, with cockroaches, baby cockroaches. I was completely shocked. I was so terrified because Kylie hates cockroaches and I grew up never seeing a cockroach in my life. So what appeared to be a great working machine turned out to be an old, filthy, disgusting machine. And it was only a matter of time before it would break down and you'd find what was really underneath. On the surface, it was fantastic. Underneath, completely revolting. Now, during the time of Amos, Israel was a prosperous nation. King Jeroboam II had reigned a long time. He was a great military leader. He brought peace, stability, and security to the land of Israel. He expanded its borders. Business was good, very good. Trade was uh, great with neighboring countries. GDP was up. Trade surplus was flying through the roof. It was a bull market on the Sumerian All Ordinaries Index. Every, in, every in, um, investor was saying, buy, buy, buy. So on the surface, Israel was great. It was a great nation. Life was great for its people. Money was everywhere. Old houses were being pulled down. Mansions were built in its place. Luxury items became commonplace. Life was so good for the Israelite. On the surface, they were doing so well. It was a beautiful country. Prospects were great. And they would have thought, God must be so pleased with us. God must be blessing us with riches and wealth, just like he promised. So you might recall the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28. Just before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses told them that God's blessing will flow, will overflow from the city to the country, from the land to the animals, from the, the bowl to the basket. There's going to be great wealth and prosperity for God's people. And so let me read some words from Deuteronomy 28 to you. Moses said to Israel, before they entered the promised land, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of the, your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in, and blessed when you go out. There's blessings all around, isn't there? What wonderful promises. It sounds amazing. And that's what the Israelites were probably thinking. We, 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 we've been blessed by God. We're prosperous. We're wealthy. We're rich. We're stable. We have peace. The stock market's skyrocketing. The economic indicators are pointing up. And so they're thinking, God's really come through for us. God's really kept his promises. God's blessing us through and through. But the problem is that if they read that blessing, those blessings in context, even a couple of verses earlier in verse 1 of the same chapter, look at what Moses said. If you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, then you'll be blessed. You see, those blessings came with a condition, and the condition was obedience and faithfulness to God. Just as God's been faithful to them in saving and rescuing them and blessing them with the land and making them into a nation, so they had to obey God's commands to faithfully follow God. You see, the prosperity of the Israelites was tied to their faithfulness to God's covenant promises. 
But as we saw last week in Amos chapter 2, like the other nations, they haven't been faithful. Far from it. The lion hasn't just roared against the seven neighboring countries of Israel. God has roared against Israel herself. For she has also taken her sins one step too far. For three sins, even four. As we heard over and over again. They fattened their wallets by selling their own people off as slaves in verse 6. They oppressed the poor and denied them justice in verse 7. They worshipped pagan gods through gross sexual immoral practices in verse 8. Their wealth and prosperity came not from their faithfulness to God, but from their exploitation of the poor. And as God's people, they haven't been faithful. They should have known better. And so now Amos reminds them, of their covenant with God and calls them to account in verse 1. So chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. You see, God could have chosen the Egyptians to be his people, the Chinese to be his people, the Aboriginals to be his people, but instead he chose Abraham. One person out of all the peoples of the earth. One person who couldn't even have a child and made him into a great nation. They were nobody, but God made them a somebody. They didn't have land, but God gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. They weren't even a nation, yet God made them into a great nation. They were slaves in Egypt, yet now they're selling their own fellow Israelites as slaves. That's completely unbelievable, isn't it? They know what it was like to be slaves, yet they're now enslaving their own people. It's like a person who used to work in sweatshops in the slums of India, earning $2 a day, manages to catch a break for some miraculous reason, gets an education in Australia, becomes a wealthy businessman, and what does he do? He opens up sweatshops. That would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? Because he knows what it was like to be a sweatshop worker, earning $2 a day. And if he were to then open sweatshops when he's rich and wealthy, would be unbelievable. Or a young woman who had fallen victim to Jeffrey Epstein is now the Ghislaine Maxwell to another billionaire. That would be unbelievable. Like my washing machine, dryer combo, outwardly Israel was prosperous and doing well. They probably thought God's on our side, God's blessing us. The envy of the nations around them, but inwardly Israel was rotten and sick to the core. And so God will punish them, for they have been unfaithful to him and to his promises. And so how will Amos get this message across? Well, that's where he goes next, from verse 3 to verse 8. But before I go there, let, let, let me tell you another story. Now, Kylie and I, we love taking our family away on holidays. It's a great time to rest and relax and spend time together as a family. One of the things that I try to instill in the culture of our family is, is, is thankfulness. And, and so often on the first night of our holidays after we've uh, traveled some distance uh, over dinner I'd often ask the kids a series of questions 
Who's excited to, uh, to get away? Who's enjoying the food? Who's having a great time? Who's happy that we're now on holidays? My questions are more or less rhetorical, but every time I expect them to respond, to answer. Yes, we're excited. Yes, we love the food. Yes, we're having great. We're so happy that we're on holidays. I want them to be filled with thankfulness and joy. And then I slip in my last question. And who's the coolest person ever? It's a bit of an inside joke uh, that my name is not really Mr. Hun, but it's really Mr. Cool. And you can ask the kids why that's the case after the service. But you can see what I'm doing with the questions I'm asking, can't you? I was winding the kids up to give me a positive response so that at the climax, the last question, they would also answer positively. And Amos does something similar because he knows that Israel won't want to agree with him. He's a prophet of God speaking the words of God's judgment to them. They're not going to want to hear his message. They're not going to want to agree with him that they deserve God's judgment. And so he winds them up. He asks them a series of rhetorical questions, eight questions in fact. And so he prepares them so that they might agree with him, that they will side with him and accept the fact that they do deserve God's judgment. But to get them there, he asks them seven obvious questions first. Seven questions that also expect the same answer. Yes, we agree with you, Amos. Yes, we agree with you. So let me just point out two as an example. So the first one is in verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? It's a rhetorical question. Of Of course two only walk together if they've agreed to do so, right? Imagine you're walking to the shops and and you're going to Uniqlo and then someone suddenly starts walking right next to you. And you turn right, they turn right. You turn left, they turn left. You speed up, they speed up. You slow down, they slow down. They're walking right next to you all the way to Uniqlo and you smile at them and they smile at you. You think it's really weird. Unless, of course, you agreed to meet with a friend to go together. It'd only be strange if it was a complete stranger. And so do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Of course. Of course the answer is yes. Or have a look at verse 6. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? Yes, of course, because when a ram's horn is blown in a city, it's like a modern-day bomb siren. An alarm warning the people of the city that the enemy is approaching, that harm is on its way. The the alarm is, is to warn the people to brace themselves to get ready for battle. Because your city is in danger, your life is at risk. Of course you tremble when you hear the bomb siren or the horn blown. One by one, these seven rhetorical questions lead you to agree with Amos. Yes, yes, you're right, Amos. Yes, we agree with you. They're logical, they make sense, they're true. And so then he's primed them for his last rhetorical question, his eighth question in verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The line has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, but who can but prophesy? Amos is defending his own ministry here. He's saying he's just a spokesman of God. God is the line. Amos is the roar, the voice of God here, and Israel their prey. 
God has spoken, Amos must prophesy, and Israel will tremble in fear. And if they don't think they're guilty and deserve God's judgment, Amos sets up now, from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, verse 15, a metaphorical court of law. This is called God's law, God's court, and God calls in his witnesses, accusing Israel of gross sin. So here you have the court of law, and as you expect, you'd expect that God will call in witnesses that are innocent bystanders or victims of Israel's oppression of the poor. But notice who God actually calls in as witnesses. The two witnesses that God calls in to his courtroom to condemn Israel for their sins are the two arch enemies of Israel. Verse 9, proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves to the mountains of Samaria, that is the capital city of the northern kingdom. See the great unrest within her and oppression among her people. In ancient Israel, the law requires that two witnesses are required to find someone guilty of a capital offence. And here God calls in two witnesses. And these two witnesses aren't bystanders or innocent people, but are terrible, terrible nations. Ashdod is one of the five cities of the Philistines who were in the slave trading business, if you remember from last week. They, they were slave traders themselves. And Egypt had previously enslaved the Israelites. These nations were evil in God's sight. These nations also deserve God's judgment. And so the implication is that if these two evil nations are the witnesses here to condemn Israel... The implication is that Israel is worse than them. In fact, they're so bad that they've lost their moral compass completely in verse 10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. That's a scathing assessment of a people, of anyone. They do not know how to do right. It reminds me of Richard Pusey. Who's a wealthy mortgage broker, even being named one of the country's top 100 brokers in 2012. Who's a high flyer with expensive tastes, buying properties right across Melbourne and luxury cars to boot. So from all appearances, he was a well-to-do, middle-upper-class, successful businessman in Melbourne. But you might know him as the infamous Porsche driver who zoomed down the Eastern Freeway in 2020. And at this time, it was like the control panel was removed. It was like we finally got to see what was under his skin. It was like we were finally able to see his true colours. When he was high on drugs and speeding down the eastern freeway, he was pulled over by the police. And as they were trying to detain him, a truck ploughs into them, hits the four police officers, misses him, But instead of lending them a hand, lending the four police officers a hand, he takes out his phone and starts to fill them. Makes vulgar commentary as they lay dying, and eventually they will die. 
before fleeing on foot and post this video on Facebook. But this wasn't Pussy's first run-in with the police. It's just the most publicised. Because when he was in high school, he was expelled after two weeks into year 10 for stealing computers. In 2008, he was charged with intentionally causing injury and damaging property. In, 2007, uh, in 2017, he was at a pub. He was refused service. And so what he did was he got a, a gas bottle, twisted it open, put it inside the pub, next to the door, closed the door, packed full of patrons. He was charged for reckless conduct, endangering serious injury. And even after the freeway incident, that same year in 2020, when on, he was on bail, he was charged for destroying property at BWS in Fitzroy, charged for assaulting a woman. He was also charged for stalking, intentionally damaging property. And the list just goes on and on and on. And that's the sense that we get of Israel. They appear to be flourishing as a nation, well-to-do, prosperous, upright citizens even. But they did not know right from wrong. They were spiritually blind. They thought they were storing up treasures when in fact their treasures had been accumulated through oppressing the poor. Verse 10, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. You see, Israel's laws were there to protect the poor, but the wealthy had grown rich at the expense of the poor. And so God now passes judgment against Israel, passes his sentence. Just as blessings come from obedience, so Deuteronomy 28, the same chapter, tells us that the curses of God comes from disobedience. And so they might take pride in their strongholds, but God will raise up an enemy, an enemy who will tear down their strongholds. Verse 11, Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. All the treasures that they've stored up will be taken and stripped from them. And this enemy is most likely Assyria, who in 30 years' time, in the time of Amos, after the time of Amos, would invade Israel and sack the city. And when they come to bring God's judgment, it will be so devastating that there will be nothing of significance left of Israel. See if you can picture the image that Amos conjures up here. This is what the Lord says in verse 12. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued. Bits and pieces of a sheep will be the remains of the people of Israel. With only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. The destruction of Israel will be so extensive and complete that you'll be left with proof of death and not the proof of life. And as one commentator put it, the tattered memory of lazy luxury on fancy beds. And because it was their false religion and wrongly accumulated wealth that leads to God's judgment and righteous judgment on them, God will destroy their altars in verse 14. 
for their false religion and their holiday houses in verse 15 for their falsely accumulated wealth. Recently, Australia's 2021 census data was released. And one thing that lots of commentators reported was that Australia is a rich country only getting richer. Since the last census in 2016, almost all of us have gotten richer. The typical personal income jumped from $662 a week to $805 a week. That's more than a 20% jump in five years. But how have we accumulated our wealth? For even though our wealth and prosperity are a blessing from God, what matters more is our morality before God. For we can appear to be upstanding citizens, but as you and I know, and as we have been reminded this morning, God doesn't look at our outward appearances. God looks at our hearts. And one day we will stand in his court to give an account for the life we've lived and the wealth we've accumulated. And what will his accusations against us be? How have we gone about accumulating our wealth? Well, here are a couple of areas to be thinking about. The work we do. There are obvious types of work like prostitution and whatnot that are very clear, very sinful. But there are other types of work that might actually lead us from godliness as we desire to get promoted, to build our wealth, to climb the ladder, to have influence. Years ago when I was at uni, in my final year I had to apply for work. And one job interview that I went to was with the Boston Consulting Group. It was a job with great prospects. It paid very, very well. But one question I asked them in the interview process was, will I have to travel? Will I have to be out of town? And the reason I asked that was because I was a leader at a youth group on a Friday night. And I was committed to the ministry at church on the Sunday. And through that interview process, I realized I actually can't take this job even if I got it. Because it meant that I couldn't actually serve at youth group and I couldn't always be present and involved on Sundays. Sometimes it's hard to make decisions with great prospects, with wonderful opportunities. But we need to sit back and think about what it will mean. Will it lead to godliness and faithfulness to God, whether that to be our church, to our wife or husband, to our children, to our family?
Or what about where we invest our money? So recently you might have seen in the news that Crown Casino was taken to court for serious and systemic money laundering breaches. Now we might not work at Crown and we might not have anything to do with money laundering. But do we invest in Crown or the Star or companies that prey on the poor and vulnerable? I mean, it was only recently that Woolworths, our wonderful supermarket chain, was the largest owner of poker machines in Australia. How do we accumulate our wealth? And at what expense and cost? How do we treat the poor? Do we give from our wealth to the poor and needy? Or do we accumulate our wealth to satisfy our desires? I mean, some Christians would argue that it's okay to pursue wealth. In fact, that's what God wants. That's a sign of God's blessings. But we need to remember that the promises of blessing and curses in Deuteronomy 28 was specific to the Israelites in the land that God promised and not to Christians today. So when you hear of the prosperity gospel, you must be on high alert. For just as the Israelites fell into the trap of picking and choosing which parts of Scripture they wanted to hold on to, so must we not take God's promises out of its context. And so some people might say, as Christians, you should pursue wealth. You should pursue prosperity because that's a sign of God's blessings and and the more you have the more you can give isn't that a good thing now it sounds like great motivation doesn't it if I earn more I can give more to the church to the poor and whatnot but the reality is that the dangers of pursuing wealth is rife with all sorts of dangers and the apostle Paul knew all that all too well For in his letter to Timothy, he says this, in 1 Timothy 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And and we need to heed that warning, friends, that if you pursue wealth, that you can and you can be at risk of wandering from the faith. Verse 11, But you, man of God, flee from all this And what should you pursue, friends? Is it wealth so that you can give more? No. Listen to what Paul says. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So with the wealth we have and the decisions we make about our work and our investments and our savings, Will what we want, will what we desire, will what we pursue 
be godliness or godlessness. To pursue riches or to pursue God. And if we ever struggle with our decisions, and if we ever fail in our decisions, we can always look to Jesus, not just as our example, but as our Saviour. For he gave up heaven and all its comfort and riches to take the form of you and me, a humble servant, to bear our sins on the cross for you and me. So that in him, we might not just have a great example, but more than that, a great saviour. So let me end with some words from Philippians 2, who Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all your blessings, especially your blessings to us in Christ. For in him we will one day enjoy the riches of heaven. And so, Father, we pray that you'll forgive us if we in any way with our work, investment, or treatment of the poor, accumulate wealth at the expense and harm of others. May you help us to repent and turn from the desires of our flesh, from the pursuit of wealth. Help us to heed your warning in Amos and help us to obey your word in Timothy, that we might pursue godliness, righteousness, and be content with what we have. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.